Hello, and welcome to the Sea Control Podcast. I'm Nathan Miller. Today, Jared speaks with Dr. Tim Choi to discuss his dissertation, which explores the development of Norwegian, Danish, and Canadian naval forces. Jonathan Selling edited and produced this episode. Here at Sea Control, we are approaching our 300th episode since our relaunch, and we would like to dedicate a show to answering your questions. If you would like to submit a question, please email us at seacontrol at simsec.org. I would like to pause here to highlight our local chapters. Whether you are in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a SimSec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of local chapters and contact information on our website at simsec.org. So if you are interested, please reach out. Finally, I want to take this opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, The Village Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that... Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Dr. Tim Choi. We'll be discussing his dissertation, Controlling the Northern Seas, the Influence of Exclusive Economic Zones on the Development of Norwegian, Danish, and Canadian Naval Forces. Tim, welcome aboard. Uh, first time that you get to appear as Dr. Tim Choi. So uh, excited to have you, get to address you by your new title here. But can you start by refreshing the listeners a little bit on your background, please? Thanks, Jared. And thanks for having me back again. It's always nice to be back on Sea Control. Uh, yeah, so name's Tim Choi, um, doctor, I suppose. Just finished my PhD at the University of Calgary, uh, the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies. Um, my dissertation was on, as you just heard uh, from Jared, uh, the Norwegian, Danish, and Canadian naval forces and how they sort of adapted to the institution of the exclusive economic zone, um, both in the short term and the long term. And um, annoyingly, I'm one of the few uh, people in Canada who studies uh, naval and maritime affairs. So it's come it's become sort of on me to sort of learn everything, anything about naval and maritime issues in this country. So even though my dissertation focused on constabulary issues, I ended up talking about submarines uh, most recently, and then some anti-submarine warfare, anti-air warfare, NORAD. I even get going to news sometimes talk about Ukraine, which is not at all what I do. But <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it ends up being, you know, sort of a master of sort of, or like jack of all trades, um, you know, in the military space, just because, uh uh, Canada really doesn't have a very big, um, you know, traditional security studies uh, field these days, which is most unfortunate, especially as we're going embarking upon this, uh, you know, national shipbuilding strategy that replaces all of our naval and coast guard fleets at the cost of, you know, over a hundred billion dollars just for the procurement alone. Um, it seems kind of crazy that there isn't more of a civilian um, academic study of this stuff, but you know, there it is. Well, that is a little disappointing, especially given that, you know, at the close of World War II, I want to say Canada was the third largest Navy in the world after yeah. the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy. I mean, there were aircraft carriers and Canada bore the, the largest burden as far as the Battle of the Atlantic was concerned, if you look at ship numbers. So any any thoughts about why that lack of interest persisted there afterwards? It's <laughs> a good question. I think for a long time, actually, during the Cold War, we had a very healthy uh Maritime studies uh, cohort that survived through it and even through to the uh, end of the Cold War toward its 90s um, and beginning of 2000s, there's still a fairly healthy number of academics who study naval maritime issues. But, you know, over time, they kind of 
you know, they will, well, as you know, fade away. Um, and unfortunately, I think the post-Cold War turn towards, you know, non-traditional security issues meant that a lot of, um, you know, new professors who are being hired, you know, focus on, you know, the new wars, quote-unquote, the terrorism, uh, extremism, that kind of, those kinds of issues, nuclear non-proliferation, um, you know, all the no, new, uh, so-called new wars that were cropping up during that time period. Now, of course, I mean, that, that falls into what navies do as well, but, you know, very few people look at it from that lens that navies were anything more than just war fighting assets or deterrence assets. Um, and so my dissertation looks into that a little bit there. But yeah, um, Canada certainly ended off the uh, Second World War, third largest fleet by sheer number of ships. Of course, most of those were the little flower class corvettes, uh, little uh, river class frigates, that kind of thing. Um, but we did end with, um, you know, getting in 1946 uh, the, our first, um, you know, owned aircraft carrier. And that became the first of three that we would own one after the other until the until 1970. Um, and those were all as part of our gradual acceptance, or rather not so gradual, it was very quick acceptance of our role as an ASW-centric force in the North Atlantic. But uh, for a brief period after the war, after the Second World War, we weren't quite sure what we'd be doing, what we'd be doing with our Navy. Um you know, at that time, a big concern was that, well, maybe the Americans were a greatest uh, threat to sovereignty. And, you know, a big reason for having any Navy at all in this new time of peace was to just ensure that the Americans don't do our defense for us. And, you know, that, that's why we sort of had this, uh, quote unquote, workable little fleet of, you know, one aircraft carrier, a couple of light cruisers, um, you know, a dozen destroyers or so. And then that will help, you know, ensure that we can keep an eye on at least our, uh, you know, our waters in around the coasts. Um, but then, you know, shortly after that, it became obvious that there will be a need to do some of that anti-submarine work once more. And uh, we went whole hog on the ASW efforts um, in terms of our fleet force structure. So we didn't really have that broad spectrum of capabilities that, you know, the larger navies did. And we really focused down on ASW to the detriment of pretty much everything else. Um, so, you know, not much for um, anti-surface warfare, not much for anti-air warfare, not much for land bombardment. And this, and, you know, this was most clearly evident in the procurement of our St. Laurent class uh, destroyer escorts and then their derivatives all of which, you know, focus on equipping themselves with long-range sonars, um, ASW torpedoes, um, you know, and anti-submarine rockets, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, only a handful of, you know, three-inch guns for basic self-defense. So, um, but they were the most advanced ships of their time, you know, and a very innovative type of vessel. I'm not sure, you know, we'll be able to do that kind of thing today. And I remember reading that, uh, it was essentially a blank check that was given to that particular project because nobody knew how much it would cost. I mean, nowadays, of course, we see for a Canadian service combatant, which replaces our entire service fleet. Um, it's, you know, every time we, you know, the news articles and the discussions always revolve about how much we expect them to cost. You know, some articles, you know, put these estimates as though they're for certain, as though they know exactly that this is how much they're going to cost um, or, you know, what all that cost includes. But in reality, I don't think anybody really knows until, you know, the final, uh, <laughs> at least until the first ship is built and then, you know, figure out from there. So, you know, that's the big thing about, you know, shipbuilding in uh, countries where we don't really have too much of an experience doing that um, with the cost estimations and such. So a lot of that comes down to, well, you know, you need these things. So, you know, do you 
you know, wring your, wring your hands over how much it costs or you just go ahead and do it. And then, you know, once you know how much it costs, then you can start, you know, deciding, well, maybe we'll stop at, you know, this amount of ships or that amount of ships or start building something else. But then you do that and then <laughs> you start having to come a new project office paper for that to new design work that adds more time to everything. And uh, that then increases the cost of the whole thing as you encounter more and more delays because you decided that you're going to design new ships instead of, you know, just going the one that you've already been building. <laughs> rambly but uh i think that's a uh, sort of a general my general feeling towards uh, the procurement at least in this country so well let me put a silver lining on the uh, on the lack of uh your, your peers in a maritime studies cohort in canada if you're the first one and you're sort of the, like the leading edge of a renaissance in canadian maritime thought then we could just be 50 to 60 years away from an hmcs dr tim Choi. <laughs> um, if, if if you are the one who indeed turns the tide, I'm uh, afraid I won't be. <laughs> I'm uh, part, most likely uh, going into a hiding way in government for at least a few years um, after this, um, given this poor state of the academic job market, um, at least in terms of uh, pay <laughs> with our ever increasing housing crisis. So um, yeah, so I'm gonna go there for a while. Until uh, an opportunity crops up, perhaps come back out from the cold. That's okay. It's like you can influence things from there as well. It'll all be part of this the greater story that's captured on the core deck of HMCS Dr. <laughs> Tim Choi. Um, <laughs> as a reminder to the listeners, all opinions today are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. To include any future uh, Canadian surface combatants named after Dr. Tim Choi. But, um, <laughs> Tim, why did you choose these three countries for your study? Great question. Um, so all of this really began, I guess, in my master's when I was actually, my main focus was on the U.S. Navy and mine warfare. Um, so that was back in, I think, 2013 or so. And one of the courses I took during that time was on Canadian Arctic security. And during that, my paper was on a comparison of our uh, still on paper um, at that time, uh, Harry DeWolf class, Arctic offshore patrol ships and how they compare with our allies abroad, so the Norwegians and Danes. So it was a very, you know, short 20, 30 page paper that looked at strictly, you know, sort of the general capabilities that were well known at the time, sort of what we might expect them to do. And that really got my attention on, well, why do these uh, Nordic navies have, um, you know, such brand new vessels? Were they, you know, who are they expect to be fighting or were they expecting to be doing with these things? Um, and that was sort of at that time also that you had a, you know, a large number of commentariat, uh, in the Canadian discourse that were, you know, whinging a lot about how our Arctic patrol ships were underarmed or they're just slush breakers, quote unquote, and how the Danes and Norwegians, they got, sh- they got icebreakers, you know, with, uh, anti-air missiles, anti-surface missiles, anti-submarine torpedoes, you know, all these things that they supposedly had. Um, that made and they were so cheap, you know, just a quarter of the price that we'd be paying for them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then I was just looking at this. I'm like, that nah, doesn't seem, you know, <laughs> entirely. That doesn't seem likely that that's the whole picture. There's got to be more behind this than what uh, the Wikipedia articles are saying. So, you know, I decided to make that at least the starting point of my or the uh, driving sort of uh, impetus behind why I was interested in this topic and why I wanted to look at these uh, countries and their ships. Um, and then eventually, you know, that's not really a very good um, research proposal, uh, but um, because people in the commentary pissed me off, <laughs> it's not really sufficient. So, um, you know, I had came up with something else that was a little bit more um, refined 
And so I came up with two basic research question, which was, um, you know, how did these countries, re how did this economic zone that, you know, turn all these countries that were traditionally focused on coastal defense issues into blue water concerns into countries that had to deal with blue water issues? Um, what did it do to, you know, adapt them and do traveling out to 200 nautical miles beyond the shore? What was like, what was the short term, you know, effects of that on the force structures emissions? And then what was the long term effects of those? Um, and then at the same time, there was the other uh, theoretical um, question about, well, do small and large navies differ um, all that much? If they do differ, how do they differ? And, you know, that was, uh, you know, one of my first, um, you know, presentations, academic conferences was on small navies, was at a small navies conference where they discussed this issue at a theoretical um, discussion on, you know, what are differences between small and large? Can you have a, a uniform difference between the smaller and larger navies? And, you know, what is the best way to characterize these differences? Are there, um, you know, traditionally we've had sort of the, um, Eric Grove uh, style hierarchy of, you know, these, you know, global force projection navy versus, you know, coastal defense navies. Um, but, you know, how does that work when you have, for example, as, you know, I've talked about my dissertation, um, you know, the Norwegians and the Danes, you know, they're supposedly coastal navies by most counts, but then they have these massive offshore patrol vessels that sail well beyond 200 nautical miles. And they're well and present, got a constant presence uh, in territories far overseas. And so that seems to be a merger of both, uh, you know, this global, uh, if not quite global, now at least regional force projection versus a local self-defense uh, force. And, you know, I was interested in how you have these two different ideas that aren't really captured in the traditional uh, sea power literature when they're talking about ranking, categorizing navies. So, you know, that's a... Uh, I got into choosing these uh, three topics. And of course, I want to, you know, from a more academic perspective, I want to control for a number of variables, including governance types, uh, wealth, and everything like that. So, um, you know, I chose the three NATO members. Well, all three are, you know, modern democracies uh, with strong institutional, um, you know, respect for the rule of law and a great um, understanding of how international law and agreements and treaties all sort of a, um, work together and are accepted, um, but all of which are part of the same alliance. So you don't have one country that has the, you know, U.S. umbrella and one that doesn't, um, but all of which are also bordering the Arctic Ocean in some respects. So you know, the issue of ice and, um, you know, the future issue, the current and the ongoing issue, I guess, of climate change and melting sea ice and how does that affect these things towards the modern day? Um, in terms of scope, you know, I, <laughs> I, um, you know, I go all the way from pretty much the interwar area to the near future, and just because of how long these shipbuilding programs take, not just from the shipbuilding program design, design themselves, but also the recognition of, you know, what is needed in terms of the uh, sea power outputs. And, you know, it takes a decade to come up with what your new uh, defense posture is like and decade uh, sort of alongside that to determine what kind of ship you need. Um, then, you know, five to another 10 years to build the things. And then, you know, those ships are around for another 30 to 40, if not 50 years. And then during that time, you, you know, start to think of, you learn your lessons from the previous ones that you start the whole cycle again, you build the next one. And then by that point, maybe something has changed in the geopolitical situation that requires you to rethink about, you know, your force structure overall. And so, you know, I take this, uh, you know, this multi-decade approach to really give you, give us all a, 
about you know a both the detailed uh, assessment of each of these individual um, vessels or the major vessels that was interested in the off the offshore patrol vessels and large frigates, um, but also to look at you know how did they um, each contribute to their countries overall uh, security postures during those those time periods. So you don't have to go super deep on each of these three, but maybe if you can just kind of provide us a brief summary of what were the roles or responsibilities, capabilities of each of these three navies as the Cold War wound down, and then how did their respective missions change at the end of the Cold War? Well, so I'm going to start from, you know, east to west, so with Norway. Um, back in the 1970s, you know, in preparation for the institution of the Tunjanakmaoyi set, or, you know, the EF set for them, um, the exclusive fisheries zone, and then the fisheries protection zone of Svalbard, um, while they established a distinct Coast Guard institution underneath their Navy, uh, and at that time, during the 70s, they also explored the acquisition of dedicated armed uh, offshore patrol vessels instead of the on, that the current method, which was the least civilian vessels for these constabulary missions. And during the 80s and 90s, after UNCLOS and the domestic laws were passed, they acquired dedicated armed offshore patrol vessels um, that have a secondary wartime mission because they're so close to the Soviets. Uh, so these are the NORDCAP class. They also got additional offshore leased civilian vessels to further augment these forces, these dedicated vessels. Um, and then, of course, they eventually, by the 90s, uh, decided that these this new EZ is going to require some blue water, um, high-end warfighting capability as well to help defend those resources, uh, such as oil and gas. Um, and so these are the Nassan class frigates uh, that were built. Suppose, I mean, originally, uh, their you know, requirements were for ASW, and that was the core warfighting requirement. Um, but, of course... Uh, they the size and general capability of a helicopter, these were determined by the fact that they wanted them to operate regularly in the exclusive economic zone. And so, you know, the you new know, NASA class were several times larger than the previous also class frigates that they had. So it's an interesting uh, combination there where you have a war fighting asset that is uh, also charged with constabulary issues um, in despite having a dedicated Coast Guard for such things. Now, of course, the long-term uh, consequences of this uh, following um, you know, long-term consequences of these adaptations for the EZ is that the OBVs were, as you might expect, predominantly used at home. Um, they didn't have to be sent abroad very much. Um, and the NASA class were built with, you know, that long-endurance seeking in mind um, for the EZ defense, while they actually became suitable for global operations as well. Uh, so they sell with U.S. carrier strike groups. One of them is even sent to Hawaii for RIMPAC, um, mostly as a, a sort of a showpiece for the naval strike missile that the Norwegians um, invented and have now become sort of standard uh, anti-shipping missile um, of this current next generation. So, you know, a lot of things happening there. Uh, for Denmark, they <laughs> a lot of talking here. Uh, Denmark, um, you know, they continue their existing constabulary centric fleet under the navy, and, and what what I mean by that is that ever since the 1500s, the um, the Danish navy has had a presence uh, far overseas in Greenland and Iceland, uh, back when Iceland was part of the Danish realm. Um, and they always had a strong fisheries protection uh, role uh, for underneath in the Danish Navy. And so, you know, as part of this uh, EZ preparation stuff, they didn't really have to do much that was new. Didn't have to create a new um, postcard or anything. They just added an additional OPV um, that was basically based on the existing design. Uh, so this was back in 1975. And But then in the... Um, 
decade following, they knew that they had to, you know, instead of just transiting the North Atlantic to Greenland and operating within the, you know, the territory waters, they now had to actually operate into in the in the blue water regularly in the 200 nautical mile zone um, and not just transit it. And so they built even bigger OPVs. So they went from the 1700 ton uh, Fitbjorn class uh, of the 1960s, and they've now gone up to the 3500 ton Thetis class that are still in operation today. And, you know, what's interesting thing about the Thetis class is that they're supposedly modular with a Stanflex system. Um, you know, they've got the slots built into them, and uh, there was a lot of concerns in Parliament at the time between the more, um, you know, disarmament-centric parties versus the more conservative parties. And, you know, some of them were saying, well, you know, are these ships going to be built with the capability to be turned into actual frigates? And uh, it turns out, you know, eventually that side did win. Um, you know, the potential for frigatization was technically there, physically there, but it was never actually practiced in real life. There was never an attempt to integrate any of the, um, you know, modular missile or torpedo capabilities into the Thetis class. And so their uh, modular slots were only ever used for craning ribs on board and off. So it's one of those interesting things where the, uh, you know, the promised modularity didn't really live up to uh, practice. Uh, there wasn't really a thing that was you know, exercised. So, you know, Technically, you could put them in, but, you know, there's no, the hookups uh, probably wouldn't have communicated with combat system or anything like that. There's no real sensors that would fit it. And, you know, again, one of those uh, challenges of uh, modularity. Um, and so that, uh, you know, it's legacy you know, during this uh, post-Cold War era when these countries more interested in the expeditionary role, you know, in the Mediterranean and then the Gulf War as well. Um, legacy warfighting fleet were a bit small, you know, they're mostly coastal defense ships. Um, and so it took a lot of effort to get them to, over to these uh, faraway places and they had to move entire logistical chains, um, you know, by air to nearby ports uh, to make that happen. They had to, uh, you know, send heavy lift ships to carry some of the smaller vessels, even a submarine, um, you know, to and from home, that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, in terms of the long-term consequences then, you know, the Thetis class, designed for operations around the North Atlantic for constabulary issues. Well, they're, since they're the largest vessels in the Danish fleet, uh, they end up being employed for constabulary, diplomatic, and scientific missions around the globe, um, from down in uh, Antarctica-ish to, uh, you know, anti-piracy, um, you know, to, you know, basically a sail piece uh, for Danish um, equipment um, to Southeast Asia. Uh, so they did all that Um until the formal um, long-range expeditionary warfighting fleet could be completed. And those are the frigates that they now have in service, um, the Absalon and Hyperhufa class, um, five in number right now. So for Canada, though, as the, you know, as the medium-sized country that serves as the foil for the two smaller ones, it's, um, you know, that's basically why I chose it, plus the fact that I'm Canadian, so I have to. Um, you know, they... Back in a in prelude to um, you know UNCLOS, they did acquire a few unarmed civilian um, OBVs, so the Cape Roger and Cygnus classes, um, or Cygnus. Those are just the two ships, um, and they only had to really buy these two um, because they really just focus on using the warfighting navy's assets. Um, for all these blue water missions, because of course, unlike the other two countries, our war fighting vessels, our frigates, our destroyers, you know, they had blue water capability because the blue water was where they expected to perform ASW. And so it was very easy for us to just readapt those for these constabulary missions. And the way we do that in a legal sense would simply have civilian law enforcement personnel 
put them on board, and then they'll provide a ship with the law enforcement authority needed to carry out arrests um, and interdictions um, in Canadian waters. Um, but, you know, as time went on and sort of towards the 1980s, as more and more uh, violations became apparent, uh, they decided to actually arm the civilian OPVs as well. So there's a new armed boarding program where the boarding officers now had uh, you know, MP5 machine guns and, uh, you know, the 50 cal guns were equipped onto the OPVs and they ordered two more OPVs um, to add to the mix. And so, and at the same time, they allocated more hours uh, for the Navy's, uh, you know, frigates to conduct fisheries patrols. And, you know, so, it, you know, it was an interesting combination of both, um, you know, buying a bit more ships, putting more armaments on them, as well as re-rolling, um, you know, the warfighting fleets, which were, to be honest, getting a bit old at by that point, uh, putting in towards the fisheries patrol mission. And, you know, What's interesting is that the um, our frigates, the newest ones, the Halifax class that were you know being built in the late 80s and came online in the 90s and still serves today, um, you know the 12 frigates they weren't really designed with the constabulary mode of mind, um, but nonetheless because they were meant for operations uh, far overseas, you know they were built in a time that we had the forward um, you know the forward strategy of uh, NATO. Um, in the far north, so they're kind of expected to fight, you know, against air threats as well uh, while they're hunting submarines. So they had all sorts of, you know, full the, the normal complement of multi-mission capabilities. Uh, but you know that made them sort of uh, suitable for um, fisheries patrols as well, though they weren't really used as much for that. Um, and we have sort of this period of the uh, mid nineties, uh, sort of intensification of these sort of sea control operations against uh, fishers, illegal fishers. Um, off the east coast of Canada, and you see this uh, us even using submarines uh, for that role, um, and of course uh, us firing a few actual live rounds against um, Spanish fishing trawlers to try to bring things to a stop. And ultimately, you know, we uh, our so-called victory in the 1995 Turbo War against Spain. Um, you know, the victory there embodied in a you know an institutionalized measure that allowed um, you know different. Uh, our, the NAFO, the North Atlantic um, Fisheries Organization, to sort of um, have a greater hands-on role in ensuring uh, proper and legal fishing activities on board vessels with neutral observers. And that was sort of the long-term solution to this whole thing. And, um, you know, our victory there meant that we didn't really have to spend as much uh, effort on doing, you know, sea control activities um, using um, naval or Coast Guard or uh, fisheries uh, patrol vessels. Um, as we used to have to, and so you know our um, you know that kind of a constabulary mission sort of went down the coastal constabulary mission off our Canadian coast uh, sort of went down by the wayside um, by the late nineties and two thousands. Though you know we're sort of um, you know regaining that um, capability with our new Arctic patrol ships, um, just because we expect to have a bit more concern of that in the Arctic in the future. So you mentioned the concept of controlling the seas a, a couple times in that last answer, as well as in the title of the uh, dissertation. It, how do these three countries view the concept of sea control similarly, or where do they differ? Yeah, so when I talk about sea control here, I think most people, of course, look at it in terms of that wartime effort, right, of uh, testing control and exercising control. Um, to do wartime things. Uh, for me, you know, I look at it from Jeffrey Till's uh, four different uses of the seas. Um, use the sea as a medium of transport, as a resource, as a, you know, as a form of power projection uh, for science. 
And, and so for me, you know, you can use C control, you know, to contest ways of doing each of those four things and exercising the way you do each of those four things as well. <laughs> and um, for me, of course, here, I'm looking mostly at the fisheries uh, issue, which is, you know, the resource side, um, using the seas as a resource and how we contest control of the seas um, for using the seas as a resource and then exercising that right. Um, and I think, you know, for the four, three countries involved, I think the, the main difference is how many of them or the extent to which each of them are willing to just let um, institutionalized measures of control take over from the um, coercive, um, compulsive side of control. And compulsive, I mean, you know, the ships of guns is basically is the most obvious way of doing it um, versus institutional measures that we all agree to, such as, you know, neutral observers through NAFO and, um, you know, the UN straddling stocks agreement, that kind of thing. Um, and I think we see um, Canada being willing to, um, you know, settle on this, um, you know, we'll have one or two sharp actions here and there, and that will that'll be the one to establish a long-term solution for institutional measures, you know, that are ultimately much cheaper Um to maintain an institute and those are and that becomes that solves the problem for you know for good quote unquote for a long period of time whereas you know the norwegian and danes you know they're still uh quite uh, concerned about you know violations of their uh um nearby fisheries and so they still maintain a very high level of uh, armed compulsive uh coast guard constabulary power um to patrol their uh maritime uh spaces so they're i mean that's the basic uh, takeaway, if you will, and you see this sort of uh, continuing on today, um, very much so as, uh, you know, I think we're going to bring up the whole, uh, you know, how does Russia change things? And certainly for the two smaller countries, you know, they're much closer, the threat is much more acute. Um, and you see their new next generation OPVs or the thoughts behind next generation OPVs, you know, it maintains sort of the relatively high level of combat capability. Um, not as high as some of the Canadian uh, skeptics would like to uh, emphasize, but still very much uh, there. And it shows a sort of greater impetus and uh, understanding that, well, you might need, um, you know, power of an actual, you know, large caliber gun behind you for um, controlling that gray zone escalation that's much more likely in their areas. All right. So apropos Russia, how have each of these navies evolved their approaches to procurement and deployment? And what do you anticipate moving forward? You you talked about you had sort of looked at the near future, but how does it look going forward as we see a belligerent Russian? All three of these countries really do share some form of maritime border with Russia. Yeah. Um, So, you know, starting with Norway, I think, um, their current generation, the ones that are just being delivered right now, the new OPVs, you know, 9,800 tons of Gen Mayan class. They replaced the old uh, Nordcap class, which are roughly only around 3,500 tons or so. Um, so <laughs> it's quite a big increase in size. Um, it's not quite sure where that size is going to. Um, they still keep basically the same 57 millimeter gun and bow. They uh, maintain the same um, TRS-3D radar at the top. Um, technically, I think they could put two helicopters on it if they want, you know, or rather if they can get a helicopter working. <laughs> Just one of those things, uh, you know, one of the famous uh, uh, disappointments, I guess, in the Norwegian uh, military establishments, the failure of their NH-90 helicopter program. You know, that was supposed to be the uh, biggest sea change in their blue water capability um, since, you know, the end of the Second World War, you now have helicopters on ships, or rather, you now have ships of helicopter decks and hangars, 
but unfortunately, uh, apparently unsolvable um, issues of the NH&IT meant that they're now being returned to sender and they're going to get some Seahawks instead. Uh, so, uh, and that's still ongoing. So, you know, they went and tried the NH&IT for, you know, 10 years or so, try to get them working at a respectable availability rate, couldn't do it. Um, and so now we have a bunch of very large ships with no helicopters on them. And so, you know, you're kind of back to uh, back to the 70s, 80s kind of uh, situation, which is most unfortunate. Um, anyway, but yeah, so, you know, they have the, uh, so that's the Coast Guard side of things for large vessels. Um, but then you also have the Nansen class, which, of course, they did build, um, not necessarily to fight the Russians, but, you know, it was still a major concern. Uh, but now, you know, they're looking into, well, replacing these as well, um, especially after they had just lost one of them in that oil tanker collision. Yeah, so that's going to come up soon in the next, you know, 10 years and decide whether to, uh, how many new frigates they're going to be building, where from, you know, how big, what capabilities they're going to be building. Because um, obviously right now, they each only have eight VLS cells. Uh, one of them has 16. So, you know, not a lot, even when you quad pack them with the SSMs. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's definitely a, you know, one of those things where no reason thinking, well, you know, it's time to really, you know, do the whole hedgehog thing again, uh, you know, build back more of the uh, area than now capabilities. Uh, for the Danes, they definitely see, uh, you know, there, there was time there, um, where they thought, oh, everything would be just out of area operations and, you know, the need for heavy armaments isn't really present anymore. And we sort of see this with the Thetis class, uh, their off, their, uh, the offshore patrol ships. Earlier, I talked about how they're built with uh, modular potential that was never lived up to. Um, and, you know, they certainly seem to have agreed with their midlife refit back in, uh, in that occurred in 2015 or so. And during that refit, they actually took out those modular spaces and put, you know, large enclosed hangers for the ribs. Um, so to really permanently put that to rest. So, you know, at that time, they clearly felt that, you know, just a bow 76 millimeter gun would be, you know, all you really need. Um, but as we're moving towards in a, sort of the post-Ukraine uh, invasion era, you see the Danish discussions moving towards replacing the Thetis class uh, with new, much more heavy armed, perhaps an ice-capable fest version of the frigates that they have in service right now with full air surveillance and combat capabilities. Um, so less of an OBV and more of a ice-capable frigate that will, you know, fill that role. And certainly for uh, Denmark, you know, sending warships for constabulary missions uh, overseas for sovereignty protection, that's nothing new for them. It's been something that I've been doing for, you know, 500 years. So, you know, it's a sort of old hat. Uh, it's not too foreign for them, um, but it is a will be a market increase in their fleet's capabilities for sure. Whether they can afford to do so is a whole different question. Um, these things do not come cheap and you know the Danish shipyard that uh, had built the latest uh, you know frigates you know they basically went out of business um, following that so um, you know they don't not sure Maersk even uh, you know builds many of the container ships uh, in Denmark anymore and most of them from Korea now or China so you know the domestic ship construction capacity isn't really uh, the same as it used to be so again the big challenges there uh, for Canada um, you know, we have our shipping program and, you know, we uh, have our uh, Hair Dwarf class, our Arctic Patrol ships, 6,800 tons of steel. Um, you know, they are, you know, they're not slush breakers, you know, contrary to our old uh, commentary. You know, they, Margaret Brooke, during her ice trial, she encountered two meters of ice. You know, that's well beyond the 1.2 meters that they're rated for. 
Um, so, you know, and, you know, it's pretty high up there and they're a bit cool up there to uh, the Canadian Arctic when nobody else is up there because, you know, who else can be really unless uh, the Russians decide to send like an icebreaker intra waters, but then you're like, what for? Um, that's always a big question to follow. You know, people always are scared that, you know, Russians are going to come into Canada's Arctic. Um, but then you have to ask themselves, what for? You know, why would they be there? Um, you know, you send, are they going to land some troops on, you know, one of them thousands of little islands up there? And then what claim it? Or, you know, what's their, what's the goal there? What's their, uh, you know, what's the purpose of doing so? Are they going to, you know, lob some cruise missiles at, you know, Iqaluit? You know, that kind of thing. It's uh, it's always a big question once you're there, then what? Um, but nobody really seems to have a good answer for that. Uh, sort of it being a prelude to all nuclear war, which <laughs> yeah, I think we have bigger problems than that then. So anyway, so, you know, our AOPS or Arctic Patrol ships, we, uh, you know, they have, they're perfectly meant for constabulary issues, armed with, a, you know, climate control 25 millimeter gun on the bow, uh, which, you know, a lot of people are like, well, that's too small. You can't really use it against uh, too many targets. And I was like, well, true, but, you know, you got to keep in mind these are constabulary missions. Um, you know, in all my studies of the Danish uh, fleets, you know, with their 76 millimeter gun, they've never really been able to use it like, in the constabulary context. Because, you know, by the time you escalate things to where you need the 76 millimeter gun, you're already well within range of boarding actions of within, you know, 50 cal a gun action. And, you know, even at that, even the 50 cal requires you to basically ask the politicians, the ministers, the deputy ministers for explicit permission to do. So it's not something that you, you know, start doing, you just start lobbing rounds at any errant suspected fisherman that you find. And so having a large weapon like that is not particularly usable, not particularly usable, not very practical. And, you know, I think for that context, a 25 millimeter gun, a bit smaller, more precise, you know, that's a much more uh, practical and uh, actually believable, a credible weapon um, in the future conflict over fisheries in our Arctic Ocean. Um, and that's sort of, the uh, expectation in terms of the most severe kind of, um, you know, security threat we see up in the high north um, that doesn't, you know, automatically escalate to something that's unforgivable. So there's that. But, you know, in terms of the actual warfighting side of things, that's where our Canadian service combatants are really coming into play. Basically, what we're going to do is replace all of our frigates with the capabilities of our destroyers that we had decommissioned um, several years ago. And so, you know, instead of having the 16 ESSMs like our Halifaxes, our CSCs basically have uh, the 29 uh, Mark 41 cells and then six uh, extended launch systems. Um, which and those six extended launch systems, they're meant for quad packs of sea scepter missiles. So it's you know a massive increase um, from 16 missiles to basically you know if you quad pack every single one of those cells, uh, those 30 cells, then that's like 120 missiles. Uh, so that's a lot. Um, obviously, we're not going to fill them all with the same kind of uh, missiles, but that just just to give you a general sense of just how much that capability is increasing, um, even if each individual ship doesn't quite have the same number of cells as, um, you know, the American destroyers or some of the other large frigates start floating around. Um, and, you know, but the big risky thing for us is that we decided uh, to accept the Lockheed Martin proposal to put their Spy 7 radars as the main uh, phase array suites on CSCs. And that's something that, well, you know, besides us, uh, the Japanese and the 
Spain, um, you know, nobody else is really using it. And so in terms of the long-term support and the development of new capabilities that are innate to those antennas, uh, we, you know, suffer a bit from having to do perhaps more of that research on our own instead of just simply borrowing, um, you know, the research that would have already been done by the U.S. Navy um, to, for, for SPY-6, for example, uh, that they've been using. So that's one of the considerations. But nonetheless, you know, it's uh, it's quite a massive expansion of our fleet's capabilities. Um, while maintaining the traditional focus on anti-submarine warfare. And of course, right now we have our, you know, sort of a or submarine replacement program, you know, how is that, or prospective submarine replacement program, which, um, you know, would replace our four Victoria class with some unknown number of future submarines, uh, if they will, in fact, be full-size uh, crewed submarines. Um, what we do know is that it's very unlikely that they'll be nuclear-powered, even though that would be the most obvious solution, uh, the most tried and true and reliable solution uh, to our defense uh, needs in terms of, you know, expeditionary operations overseas, which is what we mostly do for Navy, um, as well as under ice surveillance in our Arctic and in Central Arctic. And those are you know, and but you know, nuclear is something that uh, you know we have sort of we trifled around with, um, you know, twice in the past and didn't really get anywhere. And the cost of that was just too eye watering for um, you know us, I guess, <laughs> quote unquote us. Um, and so very much uh, leaning towards and basically the Navy, uh, the head of our Navy um, agrees that you know a large diesel electric submarine is sort of what we're what is most practical in terms of both uh, capabilities and likelihood of being procured successfully. So that's uh, sort of where we're leading towards. Well, I'm sorry that's all that we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Tim Choi. Uh, Tim, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Tim Doc Choi. Um, and what am I working on next? I'm trying to turn my dissertation into a book. So, you know, if anybody wants to publish a thing on, you know, the development of Arctic uh, navies or Arctic adjacent navies in the near future, uh, give me shouts. Well, thank you again for joining us to listeners. If, you, if you're listening to this as part of an exhibit at a Canadian Maritime History Museum, 100 years in the future, on the namesake of the HMCS, Dr. Tim Choi, I just want you to know that uh, when we're referring to ice at the poles, that is the thing that used to exist uh, here in the year <laughs> 2023. So if it's a foreign concept to you, and uh, Northern Canada is now a tropical destination where you and your friends go, that's why we're referring to that. But uh, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.